let's go ahead and um, we're going to begin our first uh, overcomers. So we're going to be breaking bondage in the battle. What does it look like to break bondage in the battle? So our first one is we're going to be in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And so we're going to do today, as let's stand and get ready to read the word of God. We are going to be talking about the backdrop and the backstage of what's going on. Uh, in spiritual warfare, what, what's kind of the big picture. So we're going to be looking at a lot of different verses today as I'm laying the groundwork for this. So just to give you a heads up, get your Bibles out, uh, pull out your phones. If you got your Bible on there, we're going to be quoting a lot of references. Many are going to be on here, but we're going to be saturated in the Word. So let's go ahead and read on count of three. One, two, three. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. tattoo for today. The battle is real, but the fight is fixed. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the time of being still before you. Thank you for the time of worshiping, pouring out our hearts before you. Thank you for the time of giving hugs and shaking hands and um, and, and seeing our kids uh, get ready to learn. And so, Lord, for that, now we thank you and we center in on your word right now. Lord, I pray that you give me the grace to make this word clear. Make it concise. Lord, I pray that we would receive this implanted word, which is able to save us, able to change us and grow us in the midst of the battle. God, I pray that from this, Lord, you will give us the beginning foundation of one step moving forward to get battle ready for what it means to walk as believers and overcomers in this life as we anticipate your return. Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So one thing, one of the many things I love about Zechariah, a son, Zechariah um, loves to help. He's a great helper. He loves to get in and kind of figure out and observe what's going on and how, how, to, how to come alongside and help. Right? And so I remember one time Zechariah and I were, were putting together furniture. And I can't put a, together furniture without him coming to my side and wanted to help, right? And so he comes in and, you know, to put up this furniture, we had a, we needed a screwdriver, we needed a hammer, we needed, they had some nails, had some screws, right? You had the Allen wrench. So you had all the different tools and all these different things that were necessary to build up this piece of furniture. So as we're going around, I remember putting stuff together and I was, I was hammering some nails in, screwing, those kind of things. And as I'm doing this and working with Zachariah, I look over and Zachariah has a hammer. Now the interesting thing is he's taking a screw, he's putting the screw where the screw needs to go, and he's hammering the screw, right, to get it in because he's watching, he's observing. This is how I I hammer, he's, and, and, and it's interesting because as he's hammering in, 
he begins to realize that it's not going in. Why is it going in? And if I can embellish on the story a little bit, you can imagine the frustration coming out, <laughs> right? Like, why is this not working? I'm hammering just like I saw Daddy hammer, and it's not going in. And you feel the frustration rise. And the frustration comes because there's not progress. What, it's, what, it's, what the hammer is supposed to do, it's not doing it. And I think this is interesting as we approach spiritual warfare. I think we're in a very similar situation. We have some tools and we know, okay, maybe I think to do this. I've seen this person do this. I've seen this entity do this. And, and so we end up taking these tools that we've seen and we use them in a way they're not meant to be used. And then when we don't see progress or uh, the ability to be overcomers, we get frustrated. And we're saying, ah, and, and what, what do I do with this? And, and so I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's not intended, it's it, the purpose for which we hope and intend when we use the tool in the wrong way leads to frustration. And so what happens is we're being, uh, the concept of being an overcomer is far from us. And we're discouraged, we're frustrated. I want to ask us as we launch into there, how do we view spiritual warfare? Let me give some things of how I've seen it view and I've gone in and out of these and wrestled with these. Sometimes the notion for some of us is spiritual warfare is only a seasonal thing in our understanding. You know those intense times where the enemy just feels like nothing's working out and the enemy's coming hard at you? And we're like, that's spiritual warfare, Right? But if that's our understanding, what happens with every other day of life when we don't have the intensities? Well, we're not battle ready because why? It's not spiritual warfare. Sometimes when, when something doesn't happen in our time, we call it spiritual warfare. Y'all, I'm telling y'all, like, I need this, what I'm about to say, to perpetuate and be a norm of how people think about spiritual formation. Watch this. Sometimes we call it spiritual warfare when in all actuality, God is trying to actually sovereignly grow you. So you're thinking, God, I want this. I need this. I need this. Why is it not happening? That The warfare is the issue. Spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. He says, no, no, no. The issue is not spiritual warfare. The issue is I got to do something in your soul. <laughs> Does that make sense? Because what happens, I, I hear that so often. People like throw this term spiritual warfare around and say, you're not even using it right. God is trying to do something, and you're just tired of sitting in that season of growth and development. So then you blame it on spiritual warfare, and you start calling other things and other people things they shouldn't be called. That is not spiritual warfare to the degree we need to understand it. It might be involved, but God sovereignly, as we will see later on through this series, will even use spiritual warfare and the attacks of the enemy to accomplish his purpose. So we got to be careful about what we call spiritual warfare. Does that make sense? I need this for those who, who I know we have people that can't make it or can't come. I need us. This is the foundation, y'all. Like every Sunday is vital because if you miss like this building block, you might miss some things down the road. I, my, my teacher mode is coming out like I'm teaching a class. Like you got to build upon. This is making sense. And so I'll get off that, 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 that dynamic. But, but I want us to understand like for spiritual for, formation, we need to begin to discern what this is. Here's a third one. Sometimes the notion of doing real spiritual warfare is for those professional people who have all the long, they, they, they have the long and the deep prayers where they can communicate, they've learned how to communicate with demons and people and to learn how to cast them out. I've been in these camps, right? Um, 
And, and, uh, and we'll get into some of that, right? We'll get into some of that because I'm not against, anyways, we'll get into that. Um, I'm a very charismatic guy, I'll just tell you that, but we got to be in the Bible, so let's wrestle with the text. Um, in this, it is hard for the believer who isn't experienced in some kind of warfare ministry to imagine that they can really be an overcomer without the help of a professional. This demon is, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, what is your notion of spiritual warfare? What is your notion of spiritual warfare? Do you tend to neglect spiritual warfare because it's not an everyday thing? Or do you tend to highlight it too much and give too much power to Satan and the the devils? All right. Here's the thing. One book we're going to start off in our foundation is Colossians. All right. In in this book, uh, Paul is highlighting some of the things that are coming at the early church from which they have been delivered. So, so he's emphasizing, he's, he's, he's going in to emphasize the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ to a church that was prone to downplay Christ's supremacy and then combine his work with other teachings that would, that, that would try to creep in, that here's the thing about these other teachings, that would sound good and powerful, okay, but have no lasting impact in the lives of those in the midst of the battle, okay, does this sound familiar? If we don't approach spiritual warfare right, we take one piece of it and we say, now you're free, only to know that the same sin pops up three days later. Where's the change? I feel good for a moment, right? I, some other tool just feels like I can have a sense of overcomer, but the daily struggle, I don't know what to do with it. So I keep going back to the tool that can't really produce the lasting change over and over and over. And before I know it, something's not clicking, trying to hammer in the screw. And and, and, and what he's saying, he says the issue with the Colossian church, here's what's going on, is they're prone to downgrade the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Watch this. Here's what's going on with them. Look at chapter 2. Let's set set a context here real quick. Chapter 2, open your Bibles. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, in him, i.e. Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, you can't find any other treasure. There's no other treasure of wisdom and knowledge outside of Christ that is good and holy and of God. Okay? It's all in Christ. And they were tempted to say, well, he's not enough. Let me add some other mechanisms that I think I need to do to make me overcome. Here's what he says, verse 4. He says, I'm saying this, I'm emphasizing the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus so that no one will deceive you. Did you catch that? This is key. Will deceive you with an argument that sounds reasonable. It sounds good. It sounds reasonable. He says, but, but I'm, I'm highlighting Jesus so you don't fall into the deception of that. In other words, it's anyone who tries to cut Christ down and make him less is doing this very thing in your life. If you're involved in anything that they say Jesus is not enough, we need something else in addition to Jesus, be careful. Make sense? If Jesus is not, we're going to talk about this, get a little ahead of myself, but if Jesus is not the center, supreme, sufficient focus of spiritual warfare, be careful. And I'll show you why. Because everything else can't do what actually needs to be done as we're going to lay out today. Okay? And then he goes down in in chapter 2, verse 8. 
he says to them, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on what tradition? Human tradition. Based on the elements of the world, or some would say the elemental spirits of the world. This could point to the reality of what we're going to talk about, is these, these spirits that we'll talk about and name and see what's going on of the world. Like, there's deception going on. Doctrines of demons, Paul would tell Timothy, all over the place. It's happening. And we're going to look into what's going on behind that, right? And so he says, be careful that you don't fall prey to that. Then he goes on, and look at chapter 2, verse 16. Watch this, stick with me. Uh, we're laying this foundation. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in the matter of the festival or new moon or a Sabbath day. Hold up, what'd you say? Don't, don't, you have to, don't you have to observe the Sabbath day to be God's people? Come on, y'all, I'm just talking about what you're going to get. We're going to do some apologetics early next year, what you're going to face with some of the Hebrew Israelites and some of the different mystery cults that we see in our community, right? There's different ways and different ways. But we're going to talk about this stuff, some of this stuff. But here's he says, be careful. Why? Because they're a shadow of what was to come. So if you stay in the shadow, you miss the substance. If you miss the substance, you miss life. You're living in the darkness of the shadow. The substance, he says, is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels. Uh-oh. Y'all hear that? I know y'all probably in the crazy camps, but there's a lot of stuff interesting talking about you got to worship and talk with angels. All right? Claiming access to a visionary realm. I'm all for words of knowledge and words of discernment. I'm charismatic, but this kind of stuff that we're about to talk about, you got to be very discerning because this stuff, doctrines of demons abound. Okay? Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind, y'all. It looks good, there's forms, but the substance is not of Christ. Therefore, it's unspiritual. Okay? He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with growth from God. Watch, and he goes on verse 23. Although these have a reputation for wisdom. My goodness. Okay, when you talk about spiritual warfare, you got a lot of reputation of wisdom. But here's what he said. They have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body. They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. There's a lot of stuff that we talk about, what spiritual warfare is, what it is, and what it looks like. And we do practices like we hammer the screw, but it's not accomplishing. It doesn't produce lasting overcomers. Jesus is after lasting overcomers. And so it, 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 in Paul's first step, here's what he does. In his first step to this young church is to help in helping disciple the church through the battle is to highlight Christ's supremacy as the necessary backdrop of learning to be over, an overcomer in the battle. So he says, I, my solution is I have to highlight the sufficiency of Jesus. And this leads us to our one point today. To properly engage the battle we must amplify the supremacy of Christ in the midst of the battle. All right? So that's our one point. To properly engage the battle, we must amplify the supremacy of Christ in the midst of the battle. Look at, let's go to, uh, go to chapter 1, verse 15. Let's go to the text. Here's what he says. He starts off with, he, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Okay? Stop there. He is the 
image of the invisible God. This is very interesting when you think about he's the image of the invisible God. Let's see how John, John says it this way to make it plain. He says it this way concerning Jesus. No one has, is John chapter 1, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God. Did you catch that? It's against all the cults. Who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Did you catch this? Jesus, who is God, is at the side of God, right? That's a whole different thing on John chapter 1. But he's at the side of God, so he is God, but he's a distinct person from the, God, from the Father, right? And so you have, but he, he makes God visible. Isn't that crazy? He's the image of the invisible God, okay? Then it goes down, watch this. Here's what else uh, uh, John says on this, or Jesus says this in John 14. He says, Philip, how long have you been with me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Je Jesus says, there's the whole theology on that, but suffice it to say, simply put, he is the image of the invisible God. No one has ever seen God, but he images God the way that humanity never could and failed to do. So the incarnation is so significant. He lived the life we could never live. Right? And living a perfect life is to image God in the way that God intends. All right? So check this out. In other words, um, th this is important for redeeming and reflecting the image of God because it's key for the battle in spiritual warfare. Why? Because spiritual warfare is an assault on the image of God. Make sense? It's important that Jesus is the image of the invisible God because he has to restore what we were going to see was destroyed in imaging God. Jesus comes and he properly images God. All right. Then he says, not only is he, this is our foundation here for what Jesus is, why we need him to do this. He's the image of the invisible God. But watch this, it also says he's the firstborn. Now, how many of y'all, when you think about firstborn, what comes to your mind? First child? What's that? Baby, yep, yep. Say what? Daughter, son, uh-huh. Inheritance, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So you've got all those things, right? Oftentimes what can be taken at this is the fact that a firstborn has been created. Make sense? So some will go around saying, well, since he's the firstborn, he's created. And that's not what this firstborn is getting at, right? Mark, you kind of get at this, ahead at this, where it's, it's the sense of firstborn, it is, it's this concept, he's preeminent. But the firstborn has the heir, so he's the rightful heir to everything. He's the rightful heir to the nations. Put a pin in that, because that's important for what we're going to go in. So Christ, as the firstborn, is preeminent, but he's the rightful heir to the nations, He's a rightful heir for, for creation. All right. Then he says, this Jesus also is everything was, was not only was it created, it, it, was, it was created uh, by him, or in other words, for in him everything was created. I like the way that the ESV renders that. For in him everything was created. In other words, all of creation was created in the sphere of Christ. Okay. So everything that was created was creating this one who properly images God and the one who is the, the rightful heir of all creation. 
Well, it makes sense. Everything was created in the sphere of Christ. Not only was it created in the sphere of Christ, but he was the agent through whom the Father created everything. It's very interesting. And, and, and not only is he the agent, but then it'll go down later on that it was all created for him. Right? So, so it's, it's for him. This is all about Christ. He's trying to say, let me amplify Christ so all this other stuff doesn't look as good. And here's what he goes down. Notice what he created in verse 16. Go to verse 16. Notice what he created. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible. This is key to understand warfare as we'll get a survey of it. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So he lists this thing. What are these in heaven and earth and visible and invisible? And what are these, these thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities? All, all this stuff was created in his sphere through him and for him. So what is happening in verse 13? Look what happens in verse 13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of his beloved son, or as the CSB renders, renders, the son he loves, right? So what is happening in the fact that here you have everything's created through him, but the father has to rescue people from a domain that is not in his domain. What happened between the, it's all created in him, and now the domain is darkness, what is happening behind the scenes here? And I want, I want to push on this a little bit. And I, I appreciate Michael Heiser's stuff work on this is we go for the fall, which we're going to talk about. But there's a lot of inner workings in this that we're going to tease a little bit out in order for us to understand why we have to engage it with the Christ sufficiency supremacy. Okay. All right. So here's the thing. A domain is a place where there is a particular authority being exercised here in the domain of darkness. The, the domain of this location, this authority of dark, is darkness. So what's going on behind the scenes for us to begin to understand? To, in order for us now, as we dive in, we're going to go to Genesis 3 real quick. In order for us to understand how to be battle ready, we need to know what's going on behind the scenes. Like what happened into why, as Ellie was praying and lamenting, we have systems we have individual dynamics. What is going on into what's happening? So go real quick. Genesis 3, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to summarize this. So you have man, or, or man and woman are the, in the image of God are supposed to be imaging God, right? So they're supposed to be reflecting who God is and his character. Here's the thing. The serpent then, which was most likely not simply a snake. Okay, you can, we're going to look at Hydra stuff later on. You can look at his stuff for supplemental. The serpent was probably not a, simply a snake. Okay, but something created, and I'm going to pack this out, in the unseen realm for God's purpose. And we'll lay this out. As we will see later on, he came up to Eve and deceived her, right? This deceive is very prominent in Colossians, and we're going to see in Ephesians. And deceived her, and she gave to Adam, who was standing with her. Now, the move of the serpent was rebellion against God and was seeking to convince the woman that God was holding back and they should simply act out in a way that's not consistent with being an image bearer. Okay? He's trying to allure them, entice them 
and, and to deceive them into being something they were never created to be. Okay? This is where he's at. You see that assault on the image of God from the serpent, from this fallen spiritual being and entity from the very beginning. In this divine rebellion, the serpent sought to distort the image of God and assume control over the earth. Okay. Now here's something about this, the, the serpent, which we, which we could see is in Isaiah 14, 13, it, it talks about this, this scene and the situation that is, is pointing towards a serpent-like, a, a rebel, a rebellion-like figure, right, that sought to be like the Most High. Okay, he sought, and I'm gonna, we're going to lay this out, but this groundwork, sought to be like the Most High. Now here's the consequence of the serpent seeking to be like the Most High God is he, he was expelled from God's home and God's family based on Ezekiel 28. Okay, so he's expelled. Now here's the thing. This is the first time in Genesis 3 that you see clear rebellion from one of the divine beings. I'm going to talk about what these divine beings are, right? You see, the first time you see clear rebellion from one of these divine beings, before this, and I'm a, I'm a, this is where we're at, where we're seeing what we, we can, yeah, there's more resources. That's why I'm giving you resources, okay? I can't cover this all uh, in sermons, but um, it is here where we see a clear, uh, oh, here we go. Before this, we have no clear record of a rebellion in heaven. That's contrary to me. Some of y'all probably heard a story that you had this big rebellion in heaven, and, you know, you had this, and then the, Satan and the demons were kicked down with a third of the angels before God even created stuff. We don't have, that's not clear in Scripture. Let me just set the record straight. Does that make sense? And so here's the thing is that, because watch, the passage, uh, passage of Re Revelations 12 is often used for that. Here's the thing. It is here where we see a clear disregard in the garden for God's rule through humanity as an extension of God's family. So the serpent comes as one of these, these created spiritual entities and he says, no, I'm going to become like God and I'm going to seek to distort because I don't want God's reign to happen. I don't want these image bearers to image God. And so I am going to seek to deceive them to act in a way they're not to distort the image of God. Okay, so he goes on. Revelations 12 is often used and we'll get into that for this, this divine rebellion and, and he Satan took a third of the angels and he comes in. But here's the thing. We're going to talk about that. But that's in the context of the Messianic seed. That's not before creation. That's in the context of the Messianic seed and there's a reason for it. Okay? So we, this is the first, from what we gauge at least clearly, this seems to be the first instance of where we see divine rebellion in the garden. Okay? It's, and from this point on, you have war against the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. In other words, what is the seed of the serpent? Is anybody and anything that's in opposition to God's reign, whether visible or invisible. The seed of the woman are God's people that will lead ultimately to the Messiah and to God's people. Does this make sense? From this point on, you have a battle against the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So this rebellion in heaven and earth continues on. And look at Genesis chapter 6. What you have is it continues on and we see mankind desiring to make a name for themselves and make an attempt to bring God down to themselves through fashioning the Tower of Babel. And their, one of their primary purposes of fashioning the Tower of Babel is let's build up to God to try to, in other words, kind of bring the God down to us. 
Let, let's, let's try to use something that would, we don't, we don't want to really do what God called us to do to be fruitful and multiply. We're going to build this up to try to get God to come down to us. That was the cultural context. You built these ziggurats and tower battles, whatever they, they were, to, to try to say that God, the deity, lives in the highest places. So if I could build it high enough, then they'll come down and make their abode with us and bless what we want to do. God's like, nope. Right. And so what we have here and, and it's interesting about um, uh, but in, in, in chapter six before we sorry, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Um, that's Tower of Babel. Right. In chapter six, you have this interesting rebellion leading up to the Tower of Babel. OK. You have a rebellion. Mankind's heart is wicked and deceitful beyond measure. They continue in rebellion. Man sinned and man's heart continues to rebel. But watch what happens. You have a story, a very interesting story. Y'all heard of the thing called the Nephilim? Okay. So you have an instance where the sons of God see the daughters of men. And they say, yo, we got to go marry them. They marry the sons of God, which you will see, and Jude makes this clear, interact with the daughters of men. And out come the Nephilim. We don't really know a whole lot about the Nephilim. It's whole different side things. We could talk about the side about where potentially where demons came from based on culture. But we're not clear scripturally. But what we do know, look at Jude. Is this making sense? Okay, go to Jude real quick. I got I to gotta lay this out and then we'll, 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 we'll bring, it'll make sense. Look at, look at Jude real quick. Jude 5 through 7. Jude picks up. Um, I'll introduce this at the apologetics or, or I'll, I'll get some guys to come out uh, talk about the book of Enoch. It's non-canonical, but it's used and talked about a lot in, in circles today, especially uh, mystery cult circles. So here's where Jude, Jude actually uses a phrase from Enoch for historical stuff and what's going on in the day. Here's what he says to give better understanding of Genesis chapter 6. Jude chapter 5, uh, verse, chapter 1, it's only one verse, chapter now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. The angels who did not keep their dwelling, scholars say the only thing we can really reference is that's Genesis 6. So there is a, there is a, there is another, there's a rebellion where those that got these spiritual entities that God created rebelled. And they, they transgressed, they went against their proper boundary and intermarried with these daughters of men, humans, and out come the Nephilim. It's an interesting thing. And I say that to say the rebellion in the unseen and the rebellion in the seen continue on. To the point where you come to Genesis 11 and watch uh, with the Tower of Babel, watch what happens with the Tower of Babel. Go to Deuteronomy 32. Do we have Deuteronomy 38 too on there? Look at, look at Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. This is Moses, the context of this book. I told you, we just got the latest foundation. Moses is speaking to the next generation. First generation is to get ready to enter the promised land, got killed off because of their unbelief and sin, disobedience. Second generation, they're coming, and he's getting them ready to go into the promised land. Okay? Here's, he's speaking to that generation. He's calling them to remember lest they be a rebellious generation. And watch what he's reminding them. He's reminding them of what happened after the Tower of Babel. Remember what happened after the Tower of Babel, because I need to you to be reminded two things, how significant you are, Israel, and how you're not just for yourself, but you're a part of my plan 
to grab the nations that I scattered. Watch what the text says. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, Tower Babel, he sent them out, right? He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the people of Israel. This, the, the, <laughs> let, me, let me clarify this real quick. The, the ESV has the better translation. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which we'll talk about apologetics, there are things that are found that give us some of the most reliable kind of documentation type stuff. The actual, the best translation is according to the number of the sons of God. Because Israel wasn't even a nation at this point. So you couldn't apportion them according to the number of the people of Israel. The best translation by the scholars who have done the work in that is actually is according to the number of sons of God. But watch what the Lord says. But the Lord says, while I gave them, I gave the nations of the world under the dominion of these other sons of God. These other spiritual entities that are over nations. Watch this. He says, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his own inheritance. In other words, he says, look, humanity is so crazy right now. I'm going to disinherit the nations. And I'm going to put these spiritual beings that I created to do my purpose, I'm going to put them over these nations, and they're going to have authority over these nations. The nations will belong to them, and they will lead the nations. But God's like, I created them to do that. Do y'all see what's going on here? Does that make sense? Now, you're saying, so what are these sons of God? What are these spiritual beings that God created for his purpose? Go down to Psalm 82. I don't think I have it on there. Let me just read this. Psalm 82 is a very, very key passage in there. Look at Psalm 82. He says this. Um, sorry, let me flip to it here. All right. So Psalm 82 says it this way. God stands in the divine assembly, or what, what it can be known as the divine council. God stands in the divine council. He pronounces judgment among the gods. Have y'all been troubled by the fact that scripture does call gods, gods with a lowercase g? Who are they? Sometimes you may have been told that they're just wooden idols and there's no spiritual entity to them. That's, that could be a troubling thing sometimes when you look and it's like, who are these gods? What are these gods? How, what do I do with these gods? Paul says, there, he refers to them. This says, uh, uh, Deuteronomy 32, and what Paul says in Corinthians, that they're demons. There's something going on, right, when we see this term. And so we don't have to be scared of that, though. Watch this. This is why. Um, he says, the, the way to translate this is, and i got to bring this in. This is important. Elohim, which is a term that is used often of God. You heard of that before? If someone says Elohim, okay. Um, here's the thing. Elohim, singular, stands in the divine council. He pronounces judgment among the gods, the Elohim, plural. So this gods that we, we capitalize the G for singular, right, is standing in judgment among the Elohim. The Elohim are standing in judgment over the Elohim, and he stands in their midst. What the heck is going on here? Y'all, this is text up. This is making sense. So the Elohim... 
stands in judgment of Elohim. The Elohim, singular, God, the uncreated God, stands in judgment over other Elohim. Elohim, if you look at it, it's this large category for uh, spirits that don't have bodies. They're, un, they're incorporeal, right? They don't have substance, but they're spirits. Angels fall into that realm of Elohim. So the thing is, so Elohim are just a word that is used for that. So when he says, God, there's only one uncreated God who stands in judgment among these other Elohim, the divine council, it's called through the Old Testament. You have these sons of God, these Elohim that he created to do his work. Like he created us on earth to be his ambassadors. He created a divine council. He didn't have to. And we don't know why he did. He's God. But he created this divine council and he apportioned the nations according to the number of these divine council, these Elohim. And he says, you're over these nations. Here's the issue with these nations. And as he goes down, he says, to these, this divine council, to these Elohim that are supposed to steward nations and people according to God's purpose, he says, look, I'm pronouncing judgment over you. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy, he says, and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. He's standing in the midst of the divine council, and he's saying this to them. They, they do not know or understand. They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. Jesus references that. That's why we have to understand this stuff, right? He says, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high. However, you will die like humans. You fail to fulfill your purpose. You made yourself. You sought to become like the most high. You sought to become like Yahweh. You're not Yahweh. You're Elohim that are part of the divine council to lead nations in the way that I'm calling you to, and you didn't. You led them astray. You see, the same theme is there is a divine rebellion, but there's human responsibility. There's the God, the most high, the only uncreated God who is triune, did this and is holding these other ones accountable and it's interesting in two through seven you see the interplay of human sinfulness and the influencing domain of the Elohim to whom Yahweh gave the nations so when we talk about when we see the isms of the world what is not simply a human of human origin stronghold and warfare if it's not a sociological construct only then we can't only have a sociological answer. Does this, does this make sense? So there's always, you have, this, you have this unseen realm that is interacting and leading nations astray, but they didn't force the nations to go astray. We chose to sin. We chose to lead corrupt lives. That all the, what the Elohim, what these other, what the other spiritual beings, divine counsel did, is they step in like, like the serpent did, right? Because Heiser would say the, the serpent was one of these divine councils, members, and said, I'm going to rebel. 
I'm going to make myself like the most high. And God's going to judge all and hold all accountable. So, he's, so the, you have this, this interplay of we choose it, but at the, like the serpent did, the Elohim, the, the leader of the nations, lead them astray. Are tempting, enticing, are like, look, this is what you need to do. Become like me. Have you ever wondered why all the religions of the world have little tiny grains of truth in them? That's why. You have, they were supposed to be serving God. Humans didn't come up with all the religions of the world. They participated in it, in sinfulness that we as humans are held accountable for. We're not forced to sin or held in bondage. Like we choose and then we go in that dominion and that's how stuff flows. Does this make sense? So we have to understand, so when we think about, and, and, and when we think about the woke church dynamic and being a church that is engaging gospel issues, and when we address spiritual warfare, we have to understand that the isms of the world are what they are, they're spiritual warfare. We can't just address them on the natural plane. We can't just address them on spiritual. This stuff is a comprehensive thing that happens. Okay, that's why the church has to lead this. And so let's get into it. I got to keep moving on this. So watch this. At the end of this, looks what the, the psalmist comes to his point after all this reflecting. And here's what he says. He says, rise up, God. Verse eight, judge the nations. Why? For the nations belong to you, not that. People that are in bondage, that are in sin, that are also led astray by these other Elohim, rise up. Because they belong to you. They belong to you. And so how do we go about fighting this and seeing this happen? If this is the reality, if this is spiritual warfare, the seed of the serpent, right, is a seeking to assault the seed of the woman, okay? It's a battle in the Old Testament from the seed of the serpent against Israel at that time. That's the battle when you have conquest, when you have wars. It is a battle going on that is a spiritual dynamic with a natural dynamic. This stuff is interplaying. And he says, I want you to begin to discern how to get battle ready in light of that. Because if you try to hammer in a screw and use only a sociological dynamic to a spiritual issue and stronghold, you won't get anywhere. But if you only scapegoat, I'm not going to avoid, it's not a spirit, it's only, everything is about sin and spiritual dynamic, and it's all that, but you don't know how to apply it in the natural realm, we miss it as well. See how comprehensive this is? And so here's the thing, he says, watch this, how are we going to fight it? The very first and most important step in relation to the fallen Elohim and spiritual powers, rulers, authorities can be seen in Colossians 1, 19. Continue on. Here's what he says. Watch this. He says, in the midst of all this, the domain of darkness and how it came about and what's going on in the unseen and the seen realm and the battle against the seeds, right? What's going on here? Here's what he says. The way that God deals with this. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile everything to himself. Back to God. Whether things on earth or where else? Things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It would be the same Christ through whom all things were created, through whom he would also bring the nations and bring everything back under his reign. Right? And so he says, it, it, now it doesn't mean that these Elohim, these Elohim, he didn't come to save the Elohim. 
So let's just make it. The incarnation came to save humanity. The Elohim are going to be cast out, as we see. Okay? They'll be held accountable, and they will no longer rule and reign. Watch how he casts them out. Look what happens here. This is significant. Go to John chapter 12. I think we have John chapter 12 on there. Look, look what Jesus says. This is the one verse in John where Jesus gets at it. And he talks about spiritual warfare clearly. Um, it says, Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be what? Cast out. The ruler of this world, okay? You see the interplay there. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. If I am lifted up from the earth, if I am crucified, this is in the context of him calling us to follow him into crucifixion. If I'm crucified, I'll draw all people or the nations to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was to, about to die. Look in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. He says this, And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, Ephesians 2 will talk about, you were walking according to the ways of the prince of the power of the air. Okay? Um, you were under sway of his stuff. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. What does he do first? He deals with the issue of sin we had against God. He, he deals with human rebellion and he, and, he, and he takes care of that. But look what else he does and he doesn't stop there. What else did he do? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Do you see that? Jesus, by Jesus coming, he says, look, I'm coming in and I'm stepping in. And through my death and resurrection, I'm going to not only deal with the sin and rebellion of humanity, but I'm going to cast out, disarm, render null, null and void those spiritual entities that once led nations astray. They can't keep reigning. Why? Because the nations belong to God and the way he's doing it is through Jesus' work on the cross. In other words, the Elohim, though, they're not going to give in easily. They're not going to give in easily. This is where we get people, missiologists have come up with this term territorial spirits. That's kind of what this is getting at. They're still going to try to lay claim to area and lead nations astray. They're still going to try to do that. In fact, here's the interesting thing. Look at in Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to go here real quick. Let's go, let's go there because you probably heard this about casting out a third of the angels and how it all happened before creation. This is something so much crazier what's happening. Look what happens in chapter 12. And, and uh, he said, uh, the, the text says this, you have this context of where a, a, a woman, a mom, a woman is, is, is getting ready to give birth, okay? There's an image of getting ready to give birth. And as this woman's getting ready to give birth, this beast is standing right away, ready to clobber her child. Let me eat, let me destroy the child that is coming from this woman. This is the scene in Revelation 12. And watch what happened. The woman then, she gave birth to a son in verse 5. A male who is going to what? Rule all nations. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 2. I've set my king on my holy hill, and, and this is to Zion, and, and I'm going to give the nations to him. 
Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Who's the firstborn? Christ. The nations are going to come to him, but the nations come to him because he alone can render null and void and disarm those spiritual entities in the unseen realm that fell. We have no power as humans to try to rebuke territorial spirits. We don't. It's taking a hammer and trying to nail in a screw. We don't have that. We have other delegated authority as we deal with here that I'm going to talk about. But it's very, it's, we've confused spiritual warfare. We go around casting out stuff that we don't know what's going on. And all the meanwhile, the stuff he came to deal with our sin and teaching us to walk in obedience by all the power of Christ. We don't pay attention to that. We just want to get the big, exciting, emotional thing of casting out. And I'm all for it. I'd be praying, putting oil on stuff and casting out dark stuff. And I've experienced it. But what I'm saying is that if we don't understand the comprehensive notion, we will address spiritual warfare in a way that doesn't grow us as overcomers. And so he says... The male who's going to be born is going to rule the nations. He does this with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Resurrect, ascension. Okay? You have this image of this. Now watch this. Here's what's interesting. The, the, the dragon is going after over and over the woman. Here's what God does. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the world. He, has, he was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, context, think Messiah. He's going after the Messiah. Think about how this, what's going on in the heavens, what did Herod do? Herod went after the firstborn because he wanted to kill the Messiah. There's, there's stuff happening up here, and there's stuff happening down here. What John gives us a picture of in Revelation is that this is what's going on in the unseen realm. When Mary's about, it's symbolic of Israel giving birth, but we see, so it's speaking of Israel, not necessarily Mary, but Israel's going to give birth to this Messiah. So when we see Mary giving birth, the unseen realm, when they think about and see and hear what's going on with this Messiah, is trying to destroy the Messiah. And God says, no, 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 he does what he does. He's going to, this one is going to rule and he goes, he's going to ascend. All right. So then he goes, look at this. And then here's what happens as a result of this. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, and you can imagine as the Messiah is being birthed, as stuff is unfolding, as God is going to conquer and save the day. Here, I hear a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come. It's the story of, y'all remember Taken, the movie Taken? Y'all remember that joke? That joke was fire, right? So, especially as men, like, like as dads, I'm like, dude, oh, this is crazy. So you have the story. Brian Mills is a former CIA operative, has a whole bunch of special skills. But he was done with it, and he was trying to rebuild his relationship with his daughter because marriage was in the shambles, rebuild his relationship with his daughter. And so with him knowing what he knows, when his daughter comes to him and says, I want to do this, I want to follow. Who did he follow? What band did he follow? 
Anybody remember? It's like you, one of those bands, right? He's like, she wanted to follow this around Europe and everything. And, and so he, he was like, I don't like this because I know too much of what's going on in the globe. I've seen too much. I'm aware of the domain of darkness that is out there. I don't like this as a dad. But then he's seen as a dad who always tries to shelter his daughter now. So the mom is like, you know, you got to let him love do it. So he says, okay. So here's the thing. She ends up going on this trip, but she didn't say the whole truth, did she? She said, we're going to follow his band, but where did she end up? She ended up in a home in Paris of, with her friend whose family was all out for the time. And as she stepped out in deceit, stepped out of the covering of her dad, who knows what's going on, steps into a situation, she places herself into a situation of domain of darkness, and without even knowing it, she put herself in a situation of powers that were plotting to grab her. When they bust in there and they knew, she knew they were going to take, she didn't know what to do, but she was on the phone. All she knew is they're coming to take me and I don't know if I'll ever see you again, dad. You can imagine the fear and all he says is he's paying attention and all she could do in being in a vulnerable state, she chose something and now she's in the dominion of darkness. She doesn't have any power. All she could do was cry out to her dad and hope that her dad would come to the rescue. And as, she's, as we see in this, the story, she's, she's laid back. She's, they're, they're, they, they can't get out. They're forced into prostitution. They're forced with drugs on them. And she's about to be sold. And she has no power. She can't go around rebuking those guys. She has no power to deal with it. All she's hoping is somehow is if she can call on her daddy who knows the domain of darkness, who can defeat the domain of darkness, maybe something will happen. And now you know the story. He jumps up in there and he wrecks shop. He goes in and disarms all them dudes and finds his daughter and rescues her and brings her back home. That's what Jesus does. We were in bondage. We had sinned. We were enslaved to sin. We couldn't help it. And we were under the dominion of darkness. And we have these powers that I couldn't free myself of my sin. I sure enough could not free myself from these Elohim that had fallen. I couldn't do that. But God in his mercy comes in like Liam Nelson in the story. And he wrecks shop. And the first thing he does is he goes and deals with sin. But at the same time, he disarms those authorities. When he disarms them, he says, now you're no longer subject to them. Not only are you free from sin, but you're free from the prince of the power of the air. You don't have to be under his bondage anymore. You can overcome. And here's the thing he says. This is what God in Christ has done for us. When it comes to spiritual warfare, Paul is saying this thing is beyond what you can do in your own strength. The good news is that when we lift Jesus up and we call upon the name of the Lord, not rebuking territorial spirits, but when we call upon the name of the Lord, he's already disarmed them. He can deal with it. So we press in and believe and we highlight the supremacy, the sufficiency of King Yeshua. When we lift him up, it reminds the evil one, you don't stand a chance. You can't stay here. You must leave. And here's the thing. The greatest act of spiritual war 
is when more and more image bearers are grown in Christ and push back darkness. The way you engage it is that when you become more like Jesus and when you see other people trust Jesus, you're conquering darkness. That's why Jesus saves. That's why Jesus does that. And so for everything was not only created by Jesus, Paul wraps up, but it will also be redeemed in his sphere and placed under his rule and reign. If this is the reality, what terror of the world can harm you? What can overcome his supremacy? If that is the reality, why do we need to fear spiritual warfare? Jesus is supreme. And so he has dealt the final blow to the unseen realm and freed us to engage the battle in everyday life as overcomers. The question now is, are we ready to get battle ready to learn about how we engage this battle in light of that sufficiency?